Hello and welcome to Men, Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Anaya Falaran Iman. She's a journalist and a broadcaster and the director and founder of the Equiano Project, a discussion forum focused on race, culture and politics. Um, we uh, we had an argument about free speech and liberalism. We uh, talked about the enormous diversity of views among British ethnic minorities and why it's a mistake to import American ideas about race to the UK. And we spoke about British Nigerian attitudes towards sex and dating and how they are um, um, crucially distinct from the sort of sex positive narratives that we're that we're most familiar with. As always, you can find Main Mother Matriarch on Substack at louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find extended episodes, bonus episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. All right, Anaya, you uh, founded the Equiano Project. Yes. Um, how how long ago now? How, how long has it been running? Since 2020. So at the height of all of the, the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah. And what was the reasoning behind the name? So the name is uh, named after uh, a 17th century former slave and abolitionist called Alauda Equiano. And he was uh, of British and Nigerian heritage. And it was named after him because I think twofold. One, a lot of the time when we're talking about issues related to kind of race and identity and anti-racism, we focus um, almost exclusively on what are the hugely influential and important figures in, in American history that have shaped you know, the modern world, such as kind of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and so on. But there were also really fascinating and important black British figures during uh, hundreds of years ago that actually really shaped the the, the legacy of, of where we are today when it comes to those issues. But on top of that, his story is actually particularly interesting. It, it's, it's really fascinating that he bought his own freedom through his kind of extraordinary um, entrepreneurship. And he really was a demonstration that even in times of just unbelievable suffering and, and subjugation, that there have been human beings that have been able to kind of rise above their circumstances and, and embody agency and kind of human imagination and, 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 and transformation. So I thought that his story in the context of, I think, oftentimes the direction of travel when it comes to anti-racism is one of uh, uh, victimhood, one of uh, inherited racial burden and oppression that actually if somebody even hundreds of years ago which was a time much more difficult to say the least uh, for for black and ethnic minority people rejected that kind of sense of self um, and and used that his own agency um, to to change his circumstances then then how can we talk in in such uh, self detrimental terms so that was the reason it was named after him and I thought that he he was a, a great example of the kinds of values and principles that underpin um the project which is um much more universalistic uh, much more um about how individuals and communities can kind of take responsibility to change their circumstances and 
and open to lots of different perspectives and negotiating and discussing in an open way. So that was uh, that was the reason why the the project's named after him. Awesome, and that's the and that's that is the goal of the organisation, right? To to be offering a counter narrative to, um, yeah, the, to the very Americanized. Now, I love the fact that you're being sort of explicitly non-American mm. in how you're going about this, including in the name the name that you've chosen. Yeah, so that the, the goal is to uh, essentially show that ethnic minority people, as it, it sounds so obvious, but frustratingly in, in the con- kind of contemporary conversation, it doesn't feel that way. It sounds obvious to say that uh, ethnic minority people have a, a wide range of perspectives. You know, not all people uh, think that Britain is institutionally racist. And there's, there's kind of like th- several kind of core tenets of uh, the discussion. One is that uh, racism is embedded within society and it never really... Uh, ends it just kind of transforms or it never really gets better so it's one about recognizing progress and 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 the like ways that things have changed but also you know this idea that anytime there's a kind of disparity in socioeconomic outcomes that must be because um there's some kind of underlying discrimination or prejudice involved and that's not to say that sometimes that, that isn't the case but there are also other reasons such as you know cultural factors, economic factors, uh, family, individual behaviour, there's all sorts of reasons. So how, how do we kind of understand it to a deeper degree rather than embrace this kind of one size fits all? So it's about recognising the change that's happened, opening up the conversation and giving a greater platform to the lots of interesting and challenging conservative, conservative Marxist post-liberal voices that are ethnic minority that kind of get marginalised in this conversation that everything is racist and that's all we should talk about and that's all we should care about. Yeah, one of the interesting paradoxes about um, the sort of progressive narrative on race is that on the one hand, um, progressives typically style themselves as the great sort of champions of ethnic minorities. But on the other hand, there often is there really isn't that fine-grained understanding of, one, the fact that just not being white doesn't mean that you share literally any opinions or interests whatsoever, and two, the fact that actually a lot of ethnic minority groups in Britain and in elsewhere are really not very progressive, actually, on a lot of issues and actually are much more likely to be socially conservative yeah. and much more religious and, you know, all of these things that actually completely run contrary to the sort of standard narrative. It's so interesting. I mean, seeing... Just the discussion, for example, about Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, you know, people making this, these egregious comparisons um, uh, with her, her views on immigration. You know, loads of people in my family completely share the views that she has. But I, just because that you're, you know, you may be a child of or even came from um, a different country doesn't mean that you don't recognise that, for example, in a in a coherent nation state that you need to regulate your um your borders and that actually people coming here in in small boats is is not ideal for uh national security and social integration and and you know criminality you know this idea that because you're an ethnic minority person um that you must effectively believe in open borders um and have a closer affinity to people that are coming over versus the country that you've chosen to live in and the, the country that you're proud of and often, you know, born into, um, is it just shows that uh, just complete disconnect from actually the, the views that many ethnic minority people think. And as you said, you know, faith um, 
Now, I'm not a religious person myself, but the 95% of my family are uh, either Christian or, or, or Muslim. And that is the truth for, for most ethnic minority people. I mean, my ethnic background is Nigerian and um, it really is now the the kind of evangelical Pentecostal um Christians of West Africa that are, are kind of keeping Christianity alive and that the, the traditional views associated around marriage and, and kind of uh, sexual minorities is is often at odds with um, progressive attitudes. And that um, nuance and that uh, appreciation is just totally kind of sidelined. And it is very interesting. Many of the kind of voices that are held up in, in the public conversation as the champions of ethnic minority, even the ones that are ethnic minority themselves, they often don't come from um, a background that is is uh, similar to uh, the the views of most people. I mean, another example is policing. It's it's a great that when people think about policing and ethnic minority people, the overwhelming uh, discussion is police stop and search and police being institutionally racist. Actually, consistently polling has showed that actually ethnic minority people are more in favour of um, of tougher policing than the population at large. Even something like cannabis use, which we often hear, um, is one of the ways that the police are, are targeting uh, young black men. Actually, if you look at um, the views of ethnic minority families, they are almost double when it comes to having wanting the police to crack down on even minor cannabis use. Um, and so the conversation is just very at odds. And to me, whether you are a, a liberal at the minority or a conservative at the minority, you know, they all should um, have a voice um, when it comes to policies and conversations that are shaping their lives and being spoken for them. Yeah, this is so telling when you look at um, you actually look at survey data on attitudes towards policing, as you say, the the demographic, if I'm remembering rightly, who are most pro police in general are middle aged South Asian women. Yeah. <laughs> Malaysian South Asian women love <laughs> the police, right? Like more than any other group, which which really doesn't at all fit with the sort of standard narrative. But then the standard narrative does depend on a lot of. Um, well, I mean, I think what's going on actually is what psychologists call outgroup homogeneity bias. Um, this this sort of deep seated instinct within humans to assume that people in the outgroup are more similar to each other than they actually are, and I think that a lot of um, a lot of sort of white progressives don't actually mix very much with people from outside of their group, even if they live in London or whatever. They don't actually have that many friends who are outside of kind of white elite circles. And I think they do just assume that people are much more of one mind than they are, um, whereas that's not true at all. And actually there's a lot of conflict as well between different ethnic minorities, which I don't think progressives are even aware of. Yeah, no, it, it, it's so true. And it, But the thing is, with when it comes to ethnic minority people, it seems to go further than other types of bias. So it is when when there is are people that um, question uh, certain narratives or... or or present a different view, then they are subject to kind of huge scrutiny or their kind of authenticity as an ethnic minority mm. person is is kind of delegitimized and, and questioned. So in terms of just that bias, it, it often feels that that it, it's kind of perceived of as a threat because there's so many kind of interest groups and, and ideologies that are kind of wedded um, to um, a, a view of ethnic minority people that 
that they are victims. Because actually, if you start to kind of question things and, and racism, of course, is still a problem. And I think it is frustrating that one has to caveat that, like that if you even you know, question mm. that it's the biggest problem, you know, facing ethnic minority people, then somehow you, you must think that racism doesn't exist. That's obviously um, not not the case. But this this sense that if you start to accept, oh, well, you know, maybe there are different views that there's a lot of other things that kind of seem to break down. Well, maybe Britain isn't this horrible kind of racist um, hellhole. Um, and maybe there are, maybe the, the past is actually much more complicated than what we're painting it out to be. And that, you know, it's full of horrendous subjugation, but also, you know, human bravery and triumph. And that human complexity is actually uh, a much more interesting uh, way of understanding ourselves and this you know, one blanket narrative. So it, the, the frustrating thing that I find when it comes to uh, the the uh, rigid nature of, of the debate on race is that um, there's lots of different things that seem to be wedded to a view that ethnic minority people are victims. Mm. Would you just would you describe yourself as a conservative? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I've I've gone back and forth on this for like years because I mean as soon anyone that will say these things are just going to be assumed to be a conservative um I mean it's a cliche but I don't think that a lot of the ways in which we think about um politics in in this left and right way is particularly useful to understanding um the way that people think today so I mean for example what was very interesting about the kind of populist movements is that many of them were uh, obviously widely regarded as on the right, but actually economically uh, they were talking about, you know, concerns about the, the level of inequality in society and that the, the kind of so-called deplorables and, and, and downtrodden uh, were not getting a, their kind of fair share and were being marginalised by, by, by the elite. Um, and that, uh, you know, wanting to bring reinstill manufacturing and jobs um so in that sense it's it was hard to to place um them politically just so neatly and actually interestingly many kind of bernie sanders you know supporters um eventually supported trump so in that sense i sometimes find it difficult um now that particular political outlook doesn't necessarily reflect my own but i think it's a, a similar parallel where I think because things have got so too far the other direction that critiquing that can just seem like you're you're a conservative um, as such when actually um, I I would consider myself a kind of soft liberal. Um, I don't think that liberalism should. I'd consider you that way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think liberalism should be taken it's actually... to its ultimate conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm yeah. just, yeah, a soft liberal, I would say. <laughs> yeah, because we often, I mean, gosh, I get, I have been, I have seen myself described in print as both right wing and left wing. Mm-hmm. With people with absolute confidence <laughs> describing me in both, using both terms. I And I sort of avoid using any, yeah. um, as, as, you know, as I think you do, because it is, it is sort of, um, yeah. Certainly getting pegged as conservative has its downsides and that you end up being siloed, I think, and you can't, you know, speak to particular audiences and so on. 
But both of us, I think, do sometimes end up under that heading of, you know, conservative young women. Um, but we actually disagree about heaps. Mm. No, we do. <laughs> I know, we talked about it recently. Like, I think you are, yeah, you are much more sincerely a liberal, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 On lots of things. I, I, I would say so. I think my views on freedom of speech, you know, I, I've campaigned on freedom of speech um, very strongly. Um, I do... Uh, my my views on race, I would say, are are actually liberal views. You know, it 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 is about kind of an emphasis on you know, a universalistic kind of outlook, um, and and that is very much about progress. Um, and also even even kind of sex and dating. You know, I, I very much agree with the uh, critiques about the the society's turn to to where there's kind of no boundaries anymore and and there's nothing to kind of rail against. But I'm also very sympathetic to a kind of um, permissive uh, society. And I I kind of like the idea of living in a society that um, where people feel uh, that they can experiment widely and um, not, not have too much kind of moral and social judgment um alongside that so I, I I would say that I would say a soft liberal would describe me um more, more than anything else the comparison with free speech and 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 sort of sexual freedom is an, is a really interesting one because I think I think yes you're consistent on it I think that you just want to give individuals as much scope as possible to make their own decisions and I think in a lot of people would say they feel the same way. Sometimes revealed preferences show that they don't actually feel that way. But it's 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 it, it's a it's a common sentiment to hear from anyone with any kind of liberal sympathies. And I don't completely disagree. I think though that I, I suppose I understand that kind of social freedom on a spectrum. And I think, in reality, it's quite hard to actually permit people that degree of freedom which is not to say that it's it's kind of Saudi Arabia or nothing I don't I really don't think that I mean so on free speech we can start with talking about free speech because I think it does link really closely to the to the sexual politics my view on free speech is I do obviously I think it should be protected in law in you know I think basically the status quo in Britain in law is fine um this kind of creeping um censoriousness on university campuses, which you've obviously spoken about a lot, and in the media and so on, um, I find to be really sinister. I also think that what the reason... I, I, I don't know if you've ever read this Ed West essay from some years ago. Um, I'll link to it in the bio because I can't remember the exact title. But um, the theory he puts forward is that the reason that we're now having conflicts over free speech and and a degree of censoriousness on campus and so on that we weren't experiencing, say, 20 years ago is not necessarily because people have sort of abandoned the abstract principles of, 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 free, of free speech and liberalism in general. It's because we're seeing a sort of ideological changing of the guard. So the example he uses is Monty Python, um, Monty Python's Life of Brian, which was um, made in the 1970s and was the target of lots of anti-blasphemy Christian opprobrium. And there were real efforts to get it shut down, which which didn't succeed in the end, because obviously the film is very blasphemous in a whole bunch of ways and really makes fun of Christianity, right? But it got away with it because it was at that point in the 70s where actually that old guard were no longer really powerful enough 
to shut down a film, right? But it also couldn't be made now because of the Loretta scene, <laughs> because of the scene where um, they basically make fun of trans people. So you could get away with that in the 70s, but you couldn't get away with that now. So it was kind of in a sweet spot where the old guard weren't strong enough to shut it down, but the new guard hadn't yet attain the strength that they have now and so the basically the reason that it felt as though there was an unusual degree of freedom of speech was actually because there wasn't like a single ideology in charge and that was it meant that that like neither 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 side was really powerful enough to have their way and the reason that we're now seeing a shift towards more censoriousness is because actually there is a new dominant ideology which is very powerful and is able to shut down. I mean, basically the cynical the cynical view is that when people can shut down their enemies' speech, they will, they will try to. Um, and you can have laws in the way of that, which I think is a good thing, but it kind of ends up being a power game whether or not you want it to be because that's just the nature of human beings. Yeah. No, I, I find that... I, I did read that essay. Um, I, so I, I think there's it, there's a lot of truth in that. And in a, in a sense, that's kind of why the government, even when they've tried to literally pass a law um, to protect uh, freedom of speech on campus, um, and, and it's kind of rat- ratcheting up, um, whether they feel the need to actually pass a law, that that still hasn't really made the kinds of impacts, because um, ultimately this uh, this ideology, this kind of zeitgeist is, is, is pervasive and dominant within institutions, and it is this kind of new moral framework. I, I think that I I think well you know I was reading a uh, rereading um Christopher Lash Revolt of the Elites which was written in the mid 90s and what was really strange about it was just that it could have been written um today so he talks about um this uh this elite that are kind of highly mobile kind of disconnected from kind of place and and community that they're kind of like global citizens and not uh don't really believe in the nation state um, and that they are increasingly kind of contemptuous and and uh, resentful of the past and kind of de- derive um, kind of moral authority from rejecting the past and, and often seeing it as a place of um, kind of all the horrors of you know, racism and sexism and misogyny um, and, and all of those things. And, you know, it, it was just very striking that this is clearly something that has been um, developing over the last kind of, 30 or, or 40 years and even though it, the conversation has really reached a kind of uh, mainstream discussion with lots of people talking about it it has been a kind of growing problem that um, about the institutions increasingly um, uh, embracing a kind of new ideology and I do think personally that it is related to um, the rise of a kind of therapeutic culture um, which no longer sees individuals, and, and this is perhaps where where you you and I might disagree, because I think this is a kind of rejection of a kind of enlightenment liberal um, notion of uh, human beings kind of taking control of their circumstances and history and shaping it, and this increasing embrace of a, of a view of human beings as as vulnerable, um, as uh, fundamentally vulnerable, um, and when you kind of mix that with the politics of identity, you get this uh, fixation on perceived vulnerable groups um, that cannot handle free speech, that the the overriding kind of uh, uh, concern should be 
about the protection from harm of these groups. And so this is um, as as kind of universities and other institutions have kind of lost confidence and faith in in some of those liberal ideals and those kind of principles that um, would give them confidence and authority. They've kind of grabbed onto these other ideals within society, these other kind of emergent religions and other emergent moral values. And, and the dominant one at the time, um, and which has been growing and se- seemingly will continue for a while, is is one about um, protecting from harm and, and self-flagellating about the past. Um, and so within that context, you know, freedom of speech is, it takes a backseat to um, the protection of vulnerable minorities, the um, apologising for um, apparent mistakes that most people, if not everybody today, had nothing to do with. And and this gives a new kind of moral authority, a, a new kind of reason to exist, to kind of uh, uh, champion a, a new cause and everything else takes a back seat. So, so I, I, I think that that kind of um, thesis that you propose from Ed West is right insofar as uh, during the kind of mid 20th century, it, it was a, um, a kind of middle period, an interregnum between the complete kind of rejection of the old values, um, but and and this kind of emergent new new one, so that there, there was perhaps a space where um, lots of things were are, are up for grabs. But now this new ideology has been institutionalized. But I would argue that the part of the problem is is um, a, a estrangement from from liberal ideals, um, and. So I, I and I think there's there should always be a a relationship between um, uh, a dynamic between the conservatives and and the liberals that kind of talk about freedom and the conservatives that are worried that um, we're in our kind of pursuit of of uh, greater freedom that we lose we lose the things that rightly constrain our freedom such as you know obligation responsibility duty and tradition. Um, so I think it's both the liberals and the conservatives that have have lost have lost the kind of meaning of 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 their purpose. Yeah. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I.
I mean, it is certainly true now that um, liberal is such a confusing term. I hate that. That is true. It is, I, I, I think it's better. Yes, I think it's better to talk about um, progressives if we're talking. Or I like woke. I mean, wokeness is also a horrible term. I think progressives is a useful term to describe this ideology, which is all about yes, rejecting the past, all this stuff. Um, it's certainly true that they actually don't necessarily care that much about free speech, and you can ask in, you know, they will some. People will still often pay lip service to free speech, but actually, even so, you can ask in polling, you know, do you think, for instance, that free speech is more important than protecting vulnerable people from offence? And plenty of people will say, no, <laughs> protecting vulnerable people from offence is more important. There's a big sex skew as well, which I'm sure I'm sure you're aware of, that women are much less interested in protecting free speech when it comes up against protecting people from offence. Um which is kind of disturbing. Um, and actually there is quite a... I often think that particularly online, the sort of progressive discourse, it's very feminine. I went to a girls' school. I know what girls' school culture is like mm. and it feels a lot like girls' school culture. <laughs> you know, it's simultaneously very... Um, it's all about displaying oneself as being really nice and really inclusive and caring about vulnerable people and being really nurturing. But actually, it can be really savage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a degree of aggression that's just sort of just beneath the surface, um, which involves social ostracism and shutting down conversation and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's very, very marked in our new in our new culture, I suppose. So, I mean, I do think that free speech is important. I do. I also think, though, this might sound a bit provocative. I think that people tend to complain about free speech when they're losing. Mm. I think it's the thing you resort to when actually you're being, you're on the back foot, your political group is on the back foot and you might not be able to advance your actual opinions and actually make changes and actually capture institutions, but you can, you know, the only thing you've kind of got in your arsenal is to say, please let us speak. But, but, you know, <laughs> please at least let us speak. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I understand that. But in a way, I don't necessarily think that's, that's a, a challenge or a bad thing because, you know, I would argue that free speech, that that's one of the great things about free speech, that it's it's almost this, the the last resort of, of those that are genuinely kind of, uh, don't have kind of economic or, or um, political power. And that was what was so amazing about it in the kind of mid 20th century with these, the civil rights movements that didn't have um, the, uh, as I said, economic power or, or, or were not kind of fairly represented in the kind of political mainstream that they could articulate and argue for, even in a context that was very uh, hostile to them and, and saw them as kind of immoral or, 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 or arguing things that undermined the, the kind of social fabric, that it was their free speech that um, w w was so powerful. So in, in a sense, um, even if it is a, a kind of cope or even if it is a the, the, this kind of last tool when someone's not um, not really winning um, the political fight, I think that that shows why it's so important that if it is still with, it should still be protected and should still be um, regarded so highly because it is a tool that regardless of whether you're up or down, we can still... Um, call upon to use to convince other people but the thing is what, what's even though I mean I, I I don't really talk too much about kind of campus issues anymore I mean obviously that there comes a point where 
you you get a bit too far away from the university campus to kind of still start start kind of campaigning on it and there are some people you feel really ancient showing up (laughs) there yeah (laughs) so it's not so yeah it's not something that I kind of talk about as much but I do think that not completely but slightly my views on it have changed I've I've not I don't think I've said this publicly um yet but I, I do think it is fair to say um that you know what what are you doing with your free speech not not the way that I think a lot of the the, the kind of uh, radical progressive activists use it but I think there is something legitimate in saying actually you know we live in a context um where kind of truth is increasingly relativized that um like transcendent or or high moral values such as kind of goodness and beauty um are 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 treated with hostility or relativized as well um is it so uh is it so wrong to ask you you know how are you using your free speech to say something beautiful meaningful interesting and inspiring and this uh, i think increasingly very shallow uh form of free speech um advocacy which is just often well you know i can say whatever i want and i think that that kind of confuses freedom with license um and actually it it, mm, it is being a bit of a troll exactly and you know there's always a space for those kinds of people but i i would like the free speech conversation to move beyond just you know i'm being cancelled to you know how how do we um you know revivify and re re-enlighten um our civic life where the 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 speech that rises to the top and gets the most attention are the ones that are are, are saying things and doing things that are really um inspiring and, and and taking society forward so i i i kind of accept a level of that which is slightly different to what i probably would have said a couple of years ago but I, I do think there's the, the challenges and questions that we're, we're facing as a society, um, kind of morally and economically, uh, require us to actually not just say, you know, it's my free speech, but also, um, you know, what, what is, where's your free speech going towards kind of actually strengthening our kind of mm. moral and social fabric? Yeah, there's a, there's there's a role for the trolls. There is a role for the trolls, but the problem is, I guess, when you're um, well, this is sort of evident in the fact that both of us are a little bit reluctant to be described as conservative. When it when it's low status to be conservative, basically, right? When progressives are are, are absolutely on the ascendant and they have, have have captured all sorts of important institutions, not all institutions, but definitely universities, definitely much of the media, NGOs, a lot of politics, and so on. Um, when you are on the back foot in terms of your your political group, um, sort of by definition, the people who are going to be most eager to um, to pipe up are the ones who are least sensitive to um, to social rejection, right? So actually, it's kind of a field day for trolls because they enjoy being provocative, they enjoy upsetting people, um, and that's fine. Like that, there is there is a role for that, but it, it does kind of course in the discourse when you don't have much more moderate agreeable basically voices willing to willing to pipe up because they just don't want to face they just they they just they just can't be dealing with all the the social consequences of it you know which is 
fair. Like it does suck being, I'm in an unusually strong position in that I basically am an independent, my, my, my income is independent of all of this stuff. I can't be fired really by anyone. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not vulnerable to any kind of the, the, the disciplinary processes within institutions. But if you are an academic or you work for certain media outlets, you're, you're, you really struggle. I guess you have the same, the same joyful freedom in working for GB News where you're not going to get fired for being anti-woke, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, the opposite, um, <laughs> which is amazing. But most people aren't in that position. And so I suppose the point where, we, where it will be clear that actually the pushback against wokeness is, is, is actually achieving something is when you're not just hearing from the trolls who are happy to get in trouble. You're hearing from the people who are more moderate and more frightened of of the social consequences that's when you actually are, are clearly gaining ground yeah no I completely agree and I think actually it's it, the what I do worry about is increasing kind of silos where people are and it, people are just in these kind of groups um of echo chambers that are not really talking to one another and that's I do think it is you know a tragedy that the, the the mainstream institutions whether that's kind of broadcasting um universities but also kind of museums and galleries um have effectively become captured by by this ideology uncritically um and it's not creative it's predictable it's not interesting um and i think that that's kind of reflected um in the fact that all of these kind of skirmishes that happened around you know the BBC or whatever uh, that is, that actually it, it is completely at odds with with the way the majority of people think. Um, and so I do think it is it is sad if we all go into kind of silos um, and, and therefore the goal really should still be uh, convincing um, people within mainstream institutions to uh, remember their fundamental moral purpose um whether that's being the kind of custodians of of uh you know our historical legacy and artifacts to um to making sure that you're creating programs um that treat different perspectives as if they're kind of fair and legitimate um i mean anytime there's a program on on race for example there will be one view and you might get like myself or somebody else that is um, a token alternative perspective that will be have a line for 30 seconds in an hour-long program um, and I, you see that with the with the, the debate about gender as well um oftentimes the debate about gender there'll be kind of like spooky music alongside the the gender critical um, voice just just so people know yes, <laughs> yes. an unflattering line yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we the Ekkarno project we put on a conference um at Cambridge um in January of this year. It was called Towards the Common Good Rethinking Race in the 21st Century. Um and we brought together so I, you know even though I've been you know talking about uh, in the importance of remembering the kind of British context, there are kind of important transatlantic similarities within the, the the racial discussion as well um so many of the key thinkers um on 
the critical of identity politics perspective, and um, we brought them over, such as Coleman Hughes and Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. And over two days, we had a we had a discussion over over just what what on earth is going on, you know why has the conversation turned this way and how can we kind of organise collectively um, in order to to kind of shift shift the narrative? And it is, you know, it, it is just amazing to hear um, that in America it is far more um, extreme, far more polarised, far more divided. Um, but there are also similarities, you know, and I, for example, the kind of cherry picking of, statistics um to to suit a kind of particular narrative um the demonization of ethnic minority people that 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 disagree the the attempt to essentialize the past as this kind of singular um evil thing that kind of bulldozes over any of the historical complexities and the refusal to recognize progress um so in that sense you know whilst i whilst i um do think that we should emphasise um, how we're different um, and and recognise the, the kind of British context. I do think that there is still a lot. There is also a lot of um, scope for for cross Atlantic um, discussions and cross Atlantic um, collaborations on all of these issues because the challenges we're facing, you know, in Western democracies around the kind of rise of politics of identity and and um, you know elite disconnection. Um, is actually quite similar. I get the impression, and maybe I'm wrong about this because I've not actually seen like numbers, there aren't nearly as many women who are putting forward the sort of anti-woke position on race. Not that, There are a few um, that I can think of off the top of my head, but in terms of the numbers, it's definitely quite a small minority. I wonder if that comes down to this what we were just talking about before, the, the social consequences of being heterodox. I wonder if, in general, women are not as willing to to be hated um, as are men. It is quite interesting because um, I don't know if you know Thomas Chaston Williams. Um, he's a... He, mm, yeah. yeah, he's a writer. I love his books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good writer. Yeah, he writes for The Atlantic. And he was, say, he was saying to me a, a few weeks ago that... In America, there's ba- there's like one or two um, heterodox ethnic minority women on race, but there's quite a few in Britain. Um, so there's mm. there's uh, myself. I, I don't know if you come across Aisha Kambi. Um, there's yes, I've seen her interview. Yeah, um, Mercy Maroki, uh, Manira. So there's a few. Um, I think that there might there mm. might be um a few more than there are males um or ethnic minority in the UK. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. True. Um so yeah. so I'm not I, I my my theory, I've not I've not assessed it uh system this is not a scientific um research or anything, but my theory is is because a lot of us come from um West African West African backgrounds. So um obviously in America it's quite different in terms of the the history of the way that kind of black women were were viewed and treated. Um, whereas whereas in the UK, I think that kind of West African um, or are actually just African in general, because um, there's a few that are kind of East African as well. That that it, it is very kind of strong on that rejection of um, 
of victimhood. I mean, my, my background, Nigerian, um, and the way that my family respond to this issue, they're, they, they can't, they, they, they've got way too much pride um, to, to allow society to kind of view them in a particular way. Um, and there is this kind of strong ethos of um, personal responsibility, um, education and, and, and building wealth um, within the Nigerian um, cultural community. That, that, I think that, that that has quite a strong influence um, on, on a lot of the, the young people that are critiquing. So, so for example, to me, were Aisha, myself, and I think there's a couple, Ralph Leonard, we're all of Nigerian heritage. I found that quite interesting. So, um, mm. so I, 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 yeah. I think there might be something in the kind of West African um, cultural attitudes that, that rejects certain types of narratives. Yes, and is a very good example of why you shouldn't just conflate um, American and British demographics, because actually an enormous proportion of black British people are not descended from slaves, are are have migrated particularly from places like Nigeria. So it's just a completely different kind of sociological context. Um, and lots of, yeah, lots of black British professional people as well coming from places like Nigeria and being very aspirational in a way that makes sense, therefore, with being less, more resistant to some of the, the yeah, the victimhood narratives, as you say. It, it is interesting. Uh, and uh, so much more research and work needs to be done on the kind of complexities of the uh, black British uh, demographics, because as you mentioned, it is so fundamentally different um, to to Americans, and but also um, to the wider kind of British mainstream. So, as you mentioned, ninety five percent of African Americans are descendants from slaves in the kind of founding of of, of America, um, and whereas that's completely different for Black British people, most came in the post war years. Um, and quite a significant proportion are um, people or children of people that came in the 1990s when Tony Blair um, hugely liberalised um, immigration laws. Um, and whereas African-Americans primarily um, are now a kind of singular ethnicity, the Black British population are incredibly diverse. The majority of Black British people um, up until about kind of 15, 20 years ago were, were um, Caribbean or you know, Jamaican um, primarily. And now Nigerians and, and West Africans are, are the, the largest um, Black British uh, minority. And it is quite interesting that you can kind of tell even in high school. So when I was in secondary school, um, there used to be an insult called uh, you were fresh off the boat. And that and that was kind of an insult within um, ethnic minority communities, saying that oh well you're you're not really you know as British as me because you know you your parents um, came here more recently and all all the Black British kids they wanted to uh, be Caribbean that that was seen as cooler and more interesting um, and now it's actually quite different uh, now when I hear a lot of the um, the teenagers in school they use a lot of West African um, slang so even the kind of the, the cultural shift from the different ethnicities has completely um, shifted. And on top of that, the kind of medium age of um, uh, black British people, uh, I think it's something like uh, mid thirties, whereas the medium age for, for the white British population is um, 
some 20, 20 years older. Um, and so even that particular difference demonstrates that when we talk about, you know, uh, disparities, um, economic disparities, well, actually a population that um, is on average much older and has you know built up wealth over um, several generations and, and even just decades of age is also going to influence the um, economic, if you just average out economically, um, what these different groups are going to have. So it is so, it just shows you just the kind of shoddy scholarship and the shoddy research that is that is forwarded to, to paint a particular narrative when just some of those facts are just completely um, ignored or not talked about. Another fact that I found really fascinating um, when I uh, was researching lots of these issues in 2020 was the proportion of, of um, black British people who were born abroad. You know, it the proportion of white British people born abroad is 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 very small, you know, less than 10%. Whereas for ethnic minority people, it's something like 40%, if not more. Now, that that's a huge difference in terms of cultural attitudes, cultural values, again, um, how long you've been in the society to kind of move up the social ladder. Um, and we don't talk about any of this. We just say, what's the average income for both ethnicities? Well, it's more for white people. And therefore, th- there must be discrimination involved. Hmm. I want to get back to the sexual cultures thing, which I, I also want to talk about in the extended section. Um, because I think we, so we disagree a little bit on um, the extent. Okay, so I think I would say, yes, there is an advantage in, in, in uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating full Saudi Arabia, but, but I do also think that there needs to be, uh, but <laughs> there needs to be, um, but for that, Mrs. Lincoln, I, <laughs> I think there needs to be guardrails of some kinds. I think there need to be norms. I think that actually in order to have a really sort of well-functioning sexual culture, I think there need to be sort of shared expectations which regulate behaviour because I think if it's a complete free-for-all and people just do completely whatever they want, you end up um, having lots of dysfunction and having lots of people getting hurt. Um, and I wanted to talk about this in relation to, as you say, having a uh, a very young skewing ethnic minority population in Britain, often people coming from quite conservative cultures, being much more religious than um, white British people. And I was, uh, while you were talking about that, I was thinking of um, Michaela Cole's series, I May Destroy You. Have you yeah. seen it? I, I think it's really, really good. And it was um, enormously well received when it came out a year or two ago on TV. And um, the thing that I felt really strongly watching it, and also knowing a little bit about Michaela Cole's background, because she used to be extremely religious, and then is uh, maybe less so now, but you can still see very clearly, I think, in the whole show her kind of Christian assumptions about sexuality. And on the one hand, some people read it as being um, a sort of sex-positive account of why consent is really important. Okay, so that's one way that you can read the show because you have the characters sort of experiencing sexual abuse in various different ways and it's very it, it, it's a very sort of sensitive portrayal of how people can be harmed by by. Um, sexual abuse and misbehaviour. But then I also watched it and I thought, hang on, every single time someone is sort of um, chooses to be hedonistic sexually, they end up being punished in one way or another. 
in the show. Like, that's a really consistent theme. And actually, the sex scenes are really not very sexy at all. I think they're deliberately filmed to not be very sexy. It's like filmed at a distance and all this kind of stuff. And I thought... I actually think what's going on here is Michaela Cole is actually herself very, very critical of, of the sexual, sexually liberal culture. And she's, she's also a very clever writer and actress. And she's, it, it's like embedded within the story is actually a very, a very critical position on what is, you know, really a very white progressive thing. Like the sex positive culture is actually really at odds with, say, Michaela's family culture and what you'll and, and what you'll not you know not just west african um communities but also south asian and like like completely different attitude and i actually thought there's a really really interesting tension there which most reviewers of the show i thought missed do you think do you, do you see that tension playing out in um in how sort of sexual culture is emerging in britain no i think i think that's a really interesting um uh perspective on on the show and i i, I do think that for most um ethnic minority people they they do feel that um in in their own kind of family life in in a whole host of um things i mean sexual culture is one of them but but i mean there's there's a quite a famous um or, or well-known meme that i've seen on on instagram and tiktok of when um uh, ethnic minority people when they're younger um they go to their white parents house and um you know the the um the white friend's house sorry and their their friend is is like arguing with their um parents and they're like completely mortified that they could speak like that to their parents <laughs> because yeah. that would just be completely alien there are very funny tiktoks about it yeah <laughs> God, there's like a whole genre of this yeah exactly yeah. and i think um and i think for most obviously again you know I I don't want to generalize I mean I think it's probably best to for me to speak about um, Nigerian people even though I think it's there's a lot of parallels in in different um, uh, ethnic minority people from the global south but you know the message oftentimes is is very simple you know it's it's don't don't have sex till you're married it's pretty much as simple as that Um, and there is uh, you know and oftentimes it is about bringing shame on the family um and and you know i think i of i understand a lot of the the um critiques of um cultures of shame and i think that of course that they can um, be taken to the extreme but i think there is something very um important and meaningful when people um aren't just thinking about how they personally feel about engaging in an act but actually what what how they're family and community will feel about that. Actually, I think it, it ties us to kind of relationships of, of um, obligation um, and meaning and duty um, beyond just our kind of individual self-interest. Um, and so for, for most kind of Nigerian girls, it, it, it is as simple as kind of don't, don't get, um, don't have sex until you're married. And um, on top of that, it, your your parents are often wanting you to marry up. You know they're they're very much thinking about the family that the your prospective other uh, comes from, and 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 so there's lots of kind of different considerations within that. You know, in contrast to um, a culture which hasn't got any of those 
particular obligations and norms, if not the other direction, as you, you mentioned, where um, for a lot of young girls, you know, they'll they'll be told that they're frigid or or, or judged if they're not uh, have, like, partaking in the um, kind of sexually promiscuous culture. Um, and I think that I think that can be very difficult to navigate um, for a lot of ethnic minority uh, young women. Um, but I think a lot of them, for example, which is a quite a good kind of counterbalance, will will uh, find relationships with people in the church, you know, if they're Christian, and and be able to opt out of that. But others, I think, will 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 feel kind of torn between these two worlds. And so I don't I don't disagree with you when you say that actually we should have certain norms um, and certain uh, obligations because I think as you put in the um, in your book that um, freedom for the the uh, pike is death for the minnow freedom for the yeah. pike is death yeah. for the no, minnow I, I, yeah, but, yeah. not my phrase but a great phrase <laughs> yeah I think but but I don't see that as kind of contradictory um, to to um, still having a level of uh, freedom of, of choice so I don't I don't see the kind of sex positive feminism um, as as the, the kind of pinnacle of a of of a of freedom, because um, I actually think there's something very unfree um, about one uh, uh, a kind of pervasive culture which doesn't um, have any kind of boundaries. Because if if you have no boundaries, then it's not really freedom. It it, it it's is essentially just um, a very kind of shallow form of uh, license. Um, and I, I, to me, fr- freedom and morality go hand in hand because then you're kind of making a choice um, uh, and, and weighing up the the different uh, moral uh, moral values and moral ways of being within society, and then and, and, and making a choice to um, whether that's embrace that or go against that. Um, so I, I is a difficult argument to make, but I don't nec- I, I I don't think that the sex positive feminism is even though it's said it's done in the name of progress i i think that you can think that that is not a good thing and um and and not an example of progress while still actually um being resistant to um an absolute morality around around sexual relations if that makes sense is is there a middle ground between those things <laughs> somewhere between Saudi Arabia and like Sin City yeah <laughs> I don't know maybe <laughs> we have to try don't we oh I I would agree with all of your with with many of your critiques about um the that the harm it's it, it's causing to a lot of people the kind of pornified culture um the the uh the way that dating happening on on dating apps where everybody's got their own ideas um and the people that genuinely want a committed relationship are are um don't know where to go because you're in a particular marketplace where you could be engaging with someone that's only uh interested in in hookups but has learned how to kind of game this system um and and abuse or, or exploit people so so i agree with with all of those things i guess the difficulty is so for me. I I think agency has to come into it, 
um and also what 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 would this counter counter uh, or new morality that and new norms be rooted in um is it is it just a purely kind of utilitarian um argument about um well this is kind of harming people so you know let's try something different and i know that you're obviously very interested in evolutionary psychology um but but to me i think what was good about the the past sexual morality is that it was rooted in a um a, a notion of the good that in itself was was rooted in um a kind of religious ethic and i think in order for something to I think it has to be rooted in something stronger um, for it to really gain cultural and moral authority within society. And I, I just, I, I'm just not sure that we're at that point yet where it, it feels rooted other than just a kind of general critique of um, the direction of travel. Mm. I want to talk about this more in the extended bit because there's a lot more to say, I think, about the tension between you know conservative religious cultures and the and 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 the the mainstream which is at the other end of the spectrum which is really interesting um i'm going to wrap up though the free bit of the episode and i can you please let people know where they can find more of your work um the equiano project where they can see you on telly all of that yeah so the equianoproject.com um lots of really interesting videos and articles and reviews about um from ethnic minority people and other people, all people that are, are kind of critical and, and, and challenging in a very courageous and interesting way. Um, I don't tweet too much anymore. So, I mean, I would tell people to go to my Twitter, but you know, I've, I've kind of, I, I just, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> very sensible, yeah. <laughs> I don't tweet that much either. <laughs> so I would just say my website, com, where I, I put, all my articles and and videos from from you know where wherever I'm broadcasting, um, and there and there's all of my my ideas on on lots of these issues there. Fantastic! All right, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch, and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>